Pouring Over Pages, a podcast of words and wine. I'm Alexa. And I'm Maritza. Let's get it started. Woo! Episode five. Episode five. I feel like it's a, a proper milestone now. Yeah. Yeah. I think we, we've said that for the past two episodes, it's but coming. this is actually a milestone. It is. It's, it's literally a handful of episodes we got now. <laughs> literally. <laughs> this is exciting. And we decided for our first episode drop in October to acknowledge uh, despite my best efforts to uh, combat this, to acknowledge spooky season. Yes, I love spooky season. I don't. <laughs> That's all I have to say about that. However, I kind of love spooky season because it is your birth month. Yes, um, my birthday is in late October, October 27th to be exact. So send cash. So send cash by merch. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so I've always been a Halloween baby. Love the spookiness. Love getting dressed up. I have a Halloween party for my birthday every year. And so she has to deal with it now since yeah, we're I'm best gonna friends. Yeah, I'm going to have to get, you know, a costume or maybe just ears. Ears like in Mean Girls. I'm a mouse. Yeah. Duh. <laughs> That's it. That's all I can contribute. But more importantly, what all of this means is that we chose a book for episode five that is spooky and this particular book is one that i read before the pandemic thank goodness now that i think of it and reread obviously for the purposes of today's conversation this book is leave the world behind by ruman alam and i just think it might be my favorite thriller ever i don't read a lot of thrillers like mm-hmm. I, I i will admit that it's i'm not reading like a thriller a month or anything like that but i read a handful when i'm in the mood to deal with feeling terrified <laughs> and leave the world behind i think is just such a brilliant way of tackling that genre because not a lot happens this is not no. a you know it's not a plot that's full of action there's no it's not a ghost story it's not horror yeah, it's, it's not, not murder scary in that murdery bloody way at all i think that this is actually the type of thriller that can get people into thrillers mm-hmm. it's a sort a gateway of gateway thriller, thriller. <laughs> yes exactly and it's and it's short which i think also is attractive to to people who maybe stay away from thrillers because you don't always necessarily want to read 300 pages worth of terror yeah, right it's but a lot this was what two 240 it I think? was pretty fast i i just read it um in september for this episode and i i went through it in just like a couple days i feel yeah and and i'm excited to have this conversation because this is a book that again like all the other ones that we've read and discussed so far really tackle really interesting themes we're going to be talking about religion we're going to be talking about contemporary issues like climate change kids in the digital age race and class i mean these are all things that are touched in such an intelligent way in this book but before we dive in as usual alexa give us a preview of what we uh are already what you and i are already drinking but what we're hoping everyone else will go out and buy a couple bottles of and drink along with us definitely so um this wine is uh, from our sponsors at uh, maison louis jadot Founded in 1859, Louis Jadot has earned a reputation as one of the most revered, celebrated wine houses in Burgundy. Louis Jadot's principles of vinification focus on the purest expression of each wine's terroir, taking the lightest possible hand in winemaking and a restrained use of oak maturation. So I actually personally buy these wines often and I'm excited to share them with you and you could visit lovejadot.com to find retailers near you and we'll dive into more about the specifics of the wine but i grabbed a chablis and a beaujolais village so they're tasty and we'll we'll keep sipping and and fill you in on the sips down the line (laughs) yes and to be completely transparent we both currently have one glass of each next to us so this should be an interesting conversation (laughs) a delicious one if anything so thank you very much for these delicious bottles, Alexa. We're gonna dive into that afterwards. So leave the world behind. Quick read, Mm -hmm. we'll start with that, quick read. I was really fascinated by the fact that this is a book that really tackles, as I mentioned, these contemporary issues, not necessarily through heavy dialogue, Mm -hmm. but more through what the characters are experiencing in that particular moment and how they reflect on what they're experiencing. 
me and you were discussing this book earlier informally before we started recording and we talked about how these characters in the book you know they experience what is a pretty hellish uh, mm-hmm. 24 to 48 hours in this book and one of the first things that we noticed was just how how would we react if we were in this situation and we didn't have information either mm-hmm. right so let me just give a very brief um, summary of what what this book is about this is about a relatively young family right Mm -hmm. amanda and clay and their two children archie and rose they rent a house in a in an area of long island that is pretty sparse right there aren't a lot of other houses around kind of yeah very country very suburban they don't see any other houses near theirs right and they find this house through airbnb and the description is you know that you're so isolated that you get to leave the world behind Mm -hmm. so they were really looking for for isolation they were really looking to relax, to remove themselves from the world, which is lovely. Don't we all want to do that? (laughs) And when they arrive, you know, they they make themselves at home fairly quickly. They're lounging by the pool. They, you know, get the kitchen all dirty. And then at night, sort of almost in the middle of the night, there's a knock on the door. Right? And, I mean, anyone would sort of panic not maybe not panic but anybody who's in such a remote place renting out a vacation house is going to be quite panicky right so we see amanda and clay react in a way that is um you know yeah panicky and uncomfortable and it turns out that when they do finally open the door it is gh and his wife ruth an, an an elderly black couple and they are apparently the owners of the home. Mm -hmm. And they say, hey, listen, guys, we're here because we were in the city. There was a massive blackout. We didn't know where to go. Our apartment in New York is on the 14th floor. We didn't want to walk up 14 flights of stairs. We thought we'd be safer here. It looks like you guys have still have power. So is it all right if we come in? And that is is where everything (laughs) starts happening. And, and, And I think to myself, what would I do if some strangers came up and then opened the door. I mean, I feel like I'm skeptical of everyone and everything now these days who's trying to scam me and and what are they trying to get out from me? So when you see someone at your door, I mean, sometimes I just try to hide before I could find out who they are. Right. Is I mean, is, is that an opportunity to be a good Samaritan or is it not? Right. And that's sort of, that's what they're facing. But from, from the moment that they knock on the door and even, and even really before that, but the author is already setting the stage for who these characters are and how they react to any sort of potential danger. So on page 31, I heard something she was whispering. This is Amanda. In such moments, Clay was called upon. He had to be the man. He didn't mind it. Maybe he liked it. Maybe it made him feel necessary. Mm-hmm. So we're already sort of touching on these issues of masculinity and and what it means to be the man and i say that as i do air quotes (laughs) um it's an interesting idea because there is so much suffering in this book or or so much anxiety in this book and you see it from every character but that idea is thrown into our sort of collective mind as readers from the very beginning and then he also introduces issues of, of of race and even of class and when he opens the door and gh is is there you know ready to explain his presence <laughs> um he he's described on page 34 as as holding up his hands in a gesture that was either conciliatory or said to be don't shoot by his age black men were adept at this gesture so mm-hmm. again the author is very pointed and and i just I, i'll probably keep emphasizing it but the fact that the that the book is so short you know that's what emphasizes these really kind of hard-hitting sentences because there isn't a lot of book it's not a it's not decorated writing it's all very very to the point yeah and i feel this book is also very intentional and descriptive like there's not a ton of dialogue like you said there's not a lot of action a lot of it's very internal conversations that the the characters are thinking of and like like he said like oh who's at the door this i am the man i have to go um and you get so much out of the writing um but there's not much going on or being said. Right. And 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 like you mentioned, the, going into their mind, mm-hmm. that becomes a big part of it. Because ultimately, they do choose to be good Samaritans. They do choose to let them in. And it, and it turns out that they are, in fact, the owners of the home. Um, but 
George, the or GH, his name is George, but sometimes his name is GH, so I apologize if I they sort go of back go and back forth. and forth. Yeah. I will be going back and forth as well, I guess. But he mentions to Clay and Amanda, he says, you know, we're willing to give you some of your money back for letting us into the home, you know, for, for us sort of disturbing your vacation. We can take the room downstairs. You guys can stay in mm-hmm. the master suite, and, you know, no problem. And uh, I think they they offer him $1,000, yeah. right? And Clay at one point is talking to Amanda in private and they're discussing whether or not these people should say. And he says, we're going to be good Samaritans. And right after that, the sentence is Clay turned the television off and stood choosing in that moment not to mention the thousand dollars. <laughs> and I think the author there is sort of playing with us a little bit, right? Like this idea of like, you know, is he being a good Samaritan or is he driven by the fact that he's going to get a discount on this vacation? Yeah. Because at that point, we don't know that all hell is about to break loose in this house and and all over the world, over, as, yeah. as we <laughs> as we eventually learn, right? But you know, he he says on that same page, morality was vanity in the end. So I think what the author is telling us about us as people is that sometimes those actions of morality, those actions of being a good Samaritan, are really a, sometimes vain, mm-hmm. and B, are actually driven by another purpose and not necessarily because you're trying to be good. Yeah, it's not about the goodness. It's your ulterior motive. Right, and what that ulterior motive is. So in this case, Clay was thinking of the money, right? Thinking of the discount. And the, and the whole conversation too is like really awkward. And even as you're reading the book, you're like, you can tell that Amanda and Clay want to kill each other while they're having this yeah. conversation because Amanda's just not keen. She's like, I don't want these people in, and I think she even says my house. Yeah, and it's like, it's their house. You're just vacationing in it. But not, and I understand that kind of wanting to protect her, her vacation time and this, you know, building up this great memory for her family and her kids of that summer, you know, in Long Island by the beach. But yeah, she just had to, it was, it was a very awkward conversation. Yeah, and and also they do mention Amanda and Clay, and of course the author as well mentions the race of the couple as one of the first, you know, ways of describing them. And Amanda touches on that specifically. And she says, you know, am am I am I a bad person for this being the first thing that I noticed? And maybe because they look so unassuming and they look so innocent and they're elderly, you know, am I Am I equating that with weakness? Is is them being black a reason for me to let them into this house so that I feel better about my perceptions of race? You know, she yeah. she reflects on that and not not necessarily always out loud, but it's definitely included by the author so that we're diving into her mindset mm-hmm. as as you had mentioned. Yeah, we get to know the characters so well through these little um, vignettes of of thoughts and internal conversation. Right, exactly. And I think at one point she even says, like, all I saw was a black man I'd never seen before <laughs> or, or something like that. And 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 she talks about how, you know, maybe they're using that as 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 a as a way to con us, mm-hmm. you know, because they know that maybe people who are trying to be kind and not be racist would look at this family and say, oh, well, then we must let them in, because if we don't, then then we're not letting them in because they're black. Yeah. Like this whole conversation <laughs> happens. And as you're reading it, it's just really interesting because, you know, you, first of all, you put yourself in the position from the very beginning when you open this book, because you ask yourself what the hell you would do if you were Amanda and Clay. Yeah. But you also judge them very harshly, right? Like as a reader, I was really like, oh my God. Yeah. I was like, oh man, nasty people. (laughs) But the truth is that if we hadn't been in their mind, would we be saying that? No, 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 at all. Because they let them in. Yeah. And they shared food. Mm-hmm. And they allowed them to take care of them later on down yeah. the line. And they took care of them in return. So we only judge them because of how the author was able to include these vignettes and yeah. these moments of internal dialogue. And I love how we go through all the different um, perspectives of each character and what they're thinking, that it's not just one-sided from Amanda's view or Ruth's view or Clay. Like, you get a a clear picture of every single character in this book and what they're thinking, which then in turn, you know, their actions may or not be mirroring what they're thinking. They may be trying to put up a front for vanity, but it's one of the things I like about this book a lot. And I think that one of the most interesting characters 
um, who we haven't spoken about yet, actually, is Ruth, Mm -hmm. G.H.'s wife. She is sort of quiet at the beginning, Mm -hmm. and she's one of those people that come in comes into a situation starts surveying the situation very observant trying to understand what's really going on and one of the things that we learn about her later is that she used to work at a school mm-hmm. so she's pretty good with kids she's very compassionate she's very understanding she's actually very kind yeah. I, I think her actions in in the book are very kind and even when she admits certain Flaw, character flaws about herself she still manages I, I, at least i think yeah. to sort even of make when, the right decision of course even when she's just like i don't like this woman she's a stranger to me she's yeah. still nice to amanda yeah. and she's in my house she's and in- i mean i can only imagine being in their position too yeah right and she she's described at one point as you know ruth worried about the world but to care for other people felt something close to resistance maybe this was all they had so you see her sort of bend against her natural inclinations, her natural incl- inclination being to sort of stay removed, right? right. And, and, and we know that from the work that she did when she was working in, I believe it was admissions or something mm-hmm. at some, some, some expensive college there, yeah, some preppy Ivy school League or, or something. something. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and there's a really interesting paragraph that I want to share because it goes to show that Ruth really is that surveying type she says, at school, Ruth treated kids as the selves they'd inevitably be. The boys who would turn out handsome and therefore catered to. The girls who would turn out pretty and therefore cruel. The rich ones who would become Republicans. The rich ones who would become drug addicts. The rich ones who would exceed their parents' expectations of them. The poor ones who would prosper and the poor ones who would skulk from Princeton back to East New York. She knew that childhood was a temporary condition. Hmm. So this is not only a moment for us to get to know Ruth and her perceptions and her understanding and her view of, of, of society, but it's also a moment for the author to, again, pinpoint these issues of race and class mm-hmm. into the book. And, and, and I find it really fascinating because I don't think thrillers are necessarily always known for touching on these issues. They're really more about feeling that dread and, yeah. and, and, and the suspense, right? This is not a suspenseful book. It was not a page turner because a whole bunch of stuff was happening no. <laughs> and I needed to know what it was. It was actually quite the opposite. It was so slow that I wanted to savor every piece. I wanted to savor every moment. I wanted to reread quotes. I mean, I have six pages of quotes in preparation for this episode because there were so many gems. And I think that that's just what good writing is. You don't have to write a 300, 400 page thriller you can. But if you want to touch on issues in just like a really smart and succinct way, this book is proof that you can do that. Yeah, definitely. It was short and and wonderful. I, I was reading it um, in bed as Sean was watching Netflix and just under the light of the lamp trying to figure out like, what's going on here? I need to learn and need to go. <laughs> right? It felt that way. It felt like a sort of educational yeah. <laughs> experience. And, and, and as... And as I mentioned at the very beginning, one of the issues that's also discussed here in, in I think, great detail and is a theme throughout is climate change. Yeah. And to, to, to be clear, because we, we haven't really discussed this too much, but in terms of what happens in the book, I don't want to go too much into it because there are a couple of surprises and moments yeah, that I think are really them. cool mm-hmm. and you should experience them as a reader and not as me telling you, but... This is a book that takes place in just under 48 hours, if I'm not mistaken. I want to say it's around there. It's a very short span of time. Right. And from the moment that G.H. and Ruth appear in the house, things, strange things start to happen. Not paranormal things, not ghostly things, not murdery things, just a sort of general confusion about the state of the world. There's a noise. I'll, I'll admit, there's this horrible noise at one point that happens and they don't know what it is and they describe it as something that you experience and feel. It was a visceral noise. It was incredibly loud. Mm-hmm. And the noise was so impactful that they didn't even know if they had experienced it. Like that sort of aftershock, that horrible you know, fear that they felt. They didn't want to admit that that had no. just happened. Amanda, right? I think, was even crying at yeah. some point. A noise that cracked the glass yeah. of their bedroom window, right? So there's there's that noise. There's there's some some moments where there are animals that appear um, in Long Island that 
do not that are not native <laughs> do not <belong> to <laughs> Long Island. I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. But what's happening is clearly some sort of global event. Mm-hmm. They just happen to be in an area of the world at that moment where they don't have any information and they're so far removed that they managed to keep their power. So they still have power throughout this and they're far enough removed to where they're experiencing what feels almost like um, like waves mm-hmm. of the major incident that, by the way, we don't know and we never find out what it is, but it feels apocalyptic. Yeah, let's put it, it that way. It really does. And, and it brings in, you know, more issues with them about, yes, they have power, but they don't have television or cell phone or, or radio and they really can't figure out what's happening. And they're even terrified to go into town to, to talk to people. There's there's this sense of of dread and confusion and, and you know, the four adults trying to figure out what's going on and, and trying to talk to each other and figure out, well, we should go to town. No, stay here. I don't want you to go. No, we're going. Like, for strangers trying to to make a a solid plan (laughs) right and people who don't have that trust in each other that Mm -hmm. confianza right if i were stuck in that situation with people that i'm close to you can be more honest yeah you know we see a moment where clay attempts to drive into town to get information right town is what 20 minutes away it's not far but it turns out that he gets lost because these these are all kind of these these smaller roads and and there aren't really any signs and there are no other cars. So he gets lost in that in that experience. He ends up running into a woman that starts speaking to him very frantically in Spanish. They can't understand each other. He starts panicking and he ends he ends up just closing the window of the car and disengaging. And he was ashamed of that. Yeah. He describes himself he as being as feeling very embarrassed of of his behavior because she was clearly distraught. She was clearly trying to communicate something urgent, yeah. right? From from the way that she was flailing and, and, and almost yelling. Yeah, I almost felt like she was going to jump in the car she was jump in the, in the window. Car. Yeah, I was like, what is happening? What? Like, what is the purpose of, you know, this particular scene? We could have spoken to her. We could have. <laughs> Easy. We would have, we would have been just fine. Chances are she would have been like, oh, I'm also from Nicaragua. Oh, cool. And I will. What part? <laughs> so, you know. Learn more languages, guys, in case, you know, the apocalypse happens. We'll speak in tongues. That character was so interesting, right? Mm-hmm. Because she she had the purpose, the sole purpose of showing us that Clay could be a coward. Yeah. Right? And that the way that he viewed her was also that of someone lesser. Yeah, I hate, he did. I hate terrible. to even acknowledge that moment in this book, but... You know, this book is about race and class. And he talks about her like she is the person who probably cleans. Yes, he the did homes make a, a mention. Yeah. And Amanda even says that at one point about GH and Ruth. Mm-hmm. These people are not the kind of people who would have this home. However, they could be the people who clean it. Yeah. So there's it's a lot of up. there's a lot of nasty shit that Clay and Amanda allude to. <laughs> In these, in these sort of internal dialogues. But he ends up, you know, as I said, in, in a very lame attempt to make it to town, doesn't make it there, ends up finding the road, comes back home, and is too ashamed to admit to G.H. Mm-hmm. and to everyone else. But I think specifically G.H., he was too embarrassed to admit that he wasn't man enough to find the town and to come back with information. Yeah. Everyone was like, you didn't make it to town. We like, need to know how? what's happening. Like, was there anyone in town? He's just like, oh, I didn't make it there. The shame of not being able to provide what everyone so desperately needed, this intangible thing, the most important thing, information of what in the actual fuck was going on. And he was not able to deliver that. And he carries that shame and only admits it very late in the book and admits it to the one person, that's why I think it's GH, that he was most embarrassed to say it to, right? But that moment for me, that was a really interesting scene, just how he handled the conversation, one-sided conversation with that woman, and how he handled himself when returning to the home uh, empty-handed. Oh, and it speaks to his character, too. I mean, you're in an apocalyptic, uncertain moment. Like, I don't want to say end of humanity because we don't really 
know what happens, but this poor woman is obviously scared, confused, trying to communicate something important, and he legit slams the door on her. Right. And that's right before the noise. Yeah. So she knows something. Yeah, there's something in the air. She might have heard something in town. Exactly. And 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 that scene, I think, stays with Clay mm-hmm. in the sense that it stays with the reader as a moment of judgment yeah. for Clay. And the other the other interesting thing about not only that conversation and, and these ideas of sort of race and class is that, you know, we, we don't really meet a lot of people no. in this book, right? So everything that we know, for the most part, is coming from the perception of Clay and Amanda. They're a white couple. Mm-hmm. They're described as like middle class. Yeah, middle you know, class. They can afford this vacation. Yeah, she's an advertising, he's a writer professor, yep. I want to say. Yep. And she, it, I mean, <laughs> she, she is sort of the, the poster child for the person who needs a vacation because she was yeah. so addicted to her email she was so addicted to her phone i mean we all are not i don't think i know anyone Everyone who's, a, who's is. above that yeah but they became so useless without their phones right yeah and one of the one of the questions was well if there's no power are we still gonna have water hi hi the like, <laughs> like you know like it just goes to show like how little practical information yeah. We know because G- we're so addicted to the phone. We are. GH was trying to, at one point, draw a map for Clay so he could, you know, be able to drive back. And, and he just started scribbling on a Couldn't piece even of do paper. That. Incoherent scribbles that... Jeez. I mean, it just goes to show. But, you know, apart from, apart from race and class, apart from these perceptions, these human perceptions, you know, we mentioned climate change. And that is a really, really, really strong theme because I think the author is sort of trying to nudge you to believe that this could be potentially mm-hmm. a climate event. We get more hints towards the towards the end of the book that this is not yeah. a, a, a natural disaster of what I think any kind, but he keeps us in suspense throughout the book. And he takes advantage of that by talking about climate change so that we also start to envision, I hate to sound really dark and sort of sad here, but so that we can envision what our world is going to look like Mm -hmm. in the near future when we have, I mean, we already do have, but when we have lots of, or lots more of, you know, climate refugees, people who can no longer live in the places that they've lived their whole lives. Um, You know, all of these different things that are going to cause war and famine, because that is the reality of the future with climate change. Whether you want to believe it or not is not really my problem, because science is not a belief system, right? Facts are not a belief system. This is something that is happening. And this book does a really incredible job. And he even tries to sort of like dumb you down if you're one of those people who doesn't (laughs) believe in climate change because he says on page 119 he says the illness of the planet had never been a secret the nature of it all had never been in doubt and it's something and indeed something had changed the fact that they didn't yet know that it had a, a bearing on the matter at all is strange but it was inside them now whatever it was so that to me was sort of like is it disease yeah right like is it in the air like is it in the water? That That's like what I started thinking. But the fact that he specifically says the illness of the planet had never been a secret, you know, that to me was really powerful. Yeah. No, and it's, it's, it's not. We see it every day from, you know, in Miami, we're at ground zero and we have the sea rising and, you know, these hurricanes that become quite powerful and frequent over time and, and now aren't even hitting us, are hitting the Northeast and New York. Right. And it's just so evident in in everything yeah and and what i think is especially interesting is how people react to things that are not directly affecting them and he discusses that in the book as well he says waist deep water was lapping against venetian marble and tourists (laughs) were smiling and taking snapshots it was like some tacit agreement everyone had ceded to things just falling apart (laughs) and it was common knowledge that things were bad surely meant that they were actually worse and that's who we are that is. as a people. Really that's who is. we are as a people. Because we know that there are horrible things happening. And yet we go on and we do all of the, our routine things. 
we record our podcast, we drink our wine, we go to the gym, we go to work, and we can't, and, and this is going to sound maybe bad, but I think that the point of that statement there, that sentence, the waist deep water lapping against Venetian marble, is actually about how we seek survival. Mm-hmm. We cannot, excuse my language, we cannot give a fuck about everything all the time, yeah. right? So what we choose to care about, what we choose to acknowledge is usually much closer to home, right? Mm-hmm. Like here you and I feel the effects of climate change. We know that Miami is probably among the first to go, right? We we'll we champion we, I'm going to canoe to your house. Right? <laughs> we champion causes that are specific to us and then we become the tourists in Venice yeah. taking snapshots because that's the reality of the world that we live in and how we emotionally and physically survive. You can judge us for that, but yeah. we all do it. We all do it. It's it's part of, you know, the human condition. I mean, I remember seeing Australia on fire, you know, some tsunamis and just thinking it's horrible and just everything that was happening in the world. But there's only so much you could deal with and even wrap your head around solving and and, and trying to contribute to. Right. And another element that is introduced very early on, and I think ties into this idea of climate change and race and class and everything, is the idea of religion and religion being used as 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 a comforting tool right Mm -hmm. we know that this is a group of people who is not religious that's made very clear from the beginning right and they even say like oh i wish i believed in prayer and right like all these sort of comments but there's one line that to me made it very clear what the author was trying to do says on page 81 ruth's mother would have invoked god Life was about making sure your children do better than you did. And Ruth's atheism was a definite improvement. <laughs> if that's not succinct and uh, to the point, I don't, I don't know what I, is. I know exactly what their family dynamic was like just with that whole sentence. There you go. And I think that a lot of people relate to that. Yeah. You know, we've, we've discussed this um, before. I think it was in episode one, actually, right? Mm-hmm. Like my, I, I don't relate to that necessarily because I my my parents and the house that I grew up in is an atheist house so we we don't have any sort of religious uh, yeah there's no religion in my home right at all and you know you've talked about how you had a very different experience yeah very religious upbringing and you know four days a week kind of church family and now I am not religious at all so you're Ruth. I am Ruth. You're yeah. Ruth in this book. And <laughs> Agnostic at best. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. And and I think that like just this idea of like religion being used as a comfort is something that is, you know, obviously we, we, we all understand that. We all relate yeah. to it in some way because this is something that people do feel. Humanity needs something to believe in, whether it's religion or, you know, God, Buddha, Allah, whatever, whatever your crystals, like anything. <laughs> right. And there are some people who rather believe in themselves mm-hmm. and believe in each other and believe in progress. Yeah. I'm one of those people. I believe really, I, I have faith in others, not all the time and probably not even, you know, specifically like not every day like i probably meet more assholes on a daily basis than i do nice people right but i have faith in progress because progress is something that you can't deny the fact that me and you can do what we're doing is progress yeah actually right there is there's so much proof of progress everywhere that i look that progress is undeniable. It doesn't matter how much people try to fight against it. The pendulum of justice always ends up, you know, where it should be, right? Yeah. Even if it's swinging around. So progress is sort of this inevitable thing. And so I, I think the author would agree with my sentiment. I think the author is trying to tell us that there's nothing wrong with leaving behind old ways of thinking. Yeah that there's nothing wrong with leaving behind 
the idea of not asking questions. This whole book is about asking questions. Mm-hmm. We're asking questions as readers, mainly, hey, what the fuck is going on? And Amanda and Clay and Ruth and George are asking questions, mainly, hey, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> and all the, and then like very specific things. And they start to think about, you know, their past and and how those things prepared them for this moment. Did it prepare them for this moment? So this idea of progress, I think, is something that the author was really, really trying to push. And I and I would hope that people who perhaps are religious and read this book, that they're not offended by no. it. I hope that they can see that this is just a way of thinking that has become popular and adopted by people. I would say people like me who, who feel and understand that the true nature of my intellect is really actually understanding how very little I know. But that doesn't mean that I have to fill in those gaps. I am allowed to live in a world where there aren't answers to every question yeah. and have faith that those que- those questions will be answered, but in a scientific and fact-based way. We don't need to have answers for everything. Yeah, That is so important. I should tattoo that somewhere on my body. We don't need answers for everything. We don't. We just don't need answers for everything. And the answer doesn't have to be something mystical or magical. We don't have to believe that everything is a is 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 a tied up perfect bow. Yeah. And that we just and have to figure out will how. Right. Or happening for a reason or right. Some will or way. Right. Exactly. That things doesn't, could just happen. Things could just happen. And that and there's a freedom in that belief. There's a freedom in knowing that when you don't try and pressure the answers to come to you, that you start to really figure out what actually matters to you and what moments actually mean to you. And the author, I think, really, really makes that point when he says, enjoying a moment is a victory. Period. Mm-hmm. Period. Because in the midst of all the shit that was going down, in the midst of all of the confusion, in the midst of everything that was happening, they still found those moments of joy, those moments of um, appreciation yeah. for for whatever was going on. And now let's actually talk about two characters that I have not discussed. Leave it to me to be the one to like not even talk about the kids here. <laughs> Um, now you love kids. <laughs> yeah, so much. They're truly my favorite. Um, Archie and Rose. Yeah, they're cute kids. They're uh, so Archie's a bit older, much more into his teenage body, cool. teenage ways. And Rose is what she's like prepubescent at this point, kind of like still kind of girly, but turning into more womanhood and and kind of you know getting into that. And she's much smarter than him. I feel. She is described in such like like as such an intuitive character. Yes. She she's she says that she knows that we need things, as in preparations, as in we need, you know, probably batteries, water, whatever. She we we need things, but more importantly, we need people. Yeah. That's pretty wise. Mm-hmm. Right? So she's this like really I think she was a great foil to the adults. Yes. Because the adults at some point had a vibe of like chickens with their heads cut off and rose was like i'm gonna go across the woods and i'm gonna go to that house where there's probably some stuff i can salvage and uh i'll see you guys later she was the only one who actually did anything her dad drove around in circles gh just kind of hung out there said you know Danny, our, our construction neighbor, would know. Amanda just drinking and, and asking what's happening. Ruth being, you know, very quiet and kind. And, and so Rose is the only one that actually did something this whole time in the yeah. book. Yeah, Rose was like, all right, I'm going to go figure some shit out. And I appreciated her a lot as a character. Um, she had this air about her that was really, it was childish. Like she was a little girl at yeah. the end of the day. Like, it was very sweet, but also she was just, yeah, she was intuitive. She was smart. She knew something was telling her to act. And I think that that was her intuition, that innocence mm-hmm. that allows for her to see things in maybe the the purest form. Because she wasn't envisioning or imagining the worst like the adults no, were. at all. She's the one who has the encounter with one of these animal moments that I... That we won't don't want to describe no. because it's just too cool for you to read it i think on your own but you know there, there's a moment towards the very end because we we should note that rose does kind of go off on her own i'm not gonna i can't really make i can't say this with certainty but i think 
my interpretation from reading this book is that we know at least yeah this this might not be true but this is just what I think, okay? But that's the good thing about this book. Right, exactly. You interpret it in many and ways. And you interpret it differently. Yeah, so I didn't just goes see to show, this. I was like, oh. This is what I think. I think that nobody in this book makes it except for Rose. And I didn't see that. But that's the best part. And now that she said it, I could kind of see that. I mean, she is the only one that had her shit together. <laughs> and she's the one who goes off on her own yeah isn't found we don't know if later she is found i assume she is because the author sort of alludes to the fact that there is more that happens with this yeah. family after they, i guess they find her but to me it was really clear that rose was the only one who had any hope of making it through whatever whatever it is that was happening and I thought that was really interesting. It, it it sort of ends with her on this like little adventure. She finds this house that's close by, scavenges some DVDs yeah. and uh, some stuff. Stuff, right? yeah, some random food. cabinet stuff, pantry, you know, I think batteries or something. Just, you know, everyday things. Right. And that innocence of hers is what led her, I think, to to be the one to survive. She's she's the one who saw the world most purely. Mm-hmm. And on page 235, so very, very close to the end, I think the last page is 240 or 241, it says, however much had happened, so much more would happen. The leader of the free world was sequestered beneath the White House, but no one cared about him. Certainly not a little girl tripping through the woods and thinking about Harry Styles. <laughs> and I mean, if that doesn't tell you that there's a power in that you know, no inhibition in that youth, in that uh, seeing the world purely, then I don't know what does. Yeah. And I also love Harry Styles. (laughs) I also just thought of this. I hadn't thought of it before, but now that we're speaking so much about Rose and her intuition and and the way that she could see the world in a pure way. So she has, has this intuition. She has the bravery. She could go out. And then earlier in the book, G.H. was talking about, you know, he's a businessman. He, he deals with the stock market, how he could he could tell what's about to happen, how he could see things before mm, they happen mm-hmm. when, when in reality he hasn't seen shit. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. So he just kept building that up and trying to get the clout from Clay. Like, yes, I, I'm an expert. I should have seen this. You, you see everything by the stocks. And, right. and in reality, no one knows what's happening. No one's getting anything done except this little girl. Yeah. And his excuse was like, oh, it's because I haven't seen the papers. I don't have yeah. information. Information is the most important thing. So once I have information, oh, I should have seen this coming. All, all of that nonsense. And yeah, you're absolutely right. So this older, accomplished, very wealthy businessman becomes really quite useless in the book. Yeah. And we see him rely in a very strange way on Danny the contractor that you mentioned earlier, a neighbor who he describes as a friend, but we find out is really no friend at all. Because in the midst of everything that was going on, I don't think you could count on pretty much anybody. I think it emphasizes the point that G.H. and Ruth and then Amanda and Clay were really only helping each other because they had no other choice. What kind of person would you be if you kicked Amanda and Clay out? What kind of person would you be if you had kicked G.H. and Ruth out, right? Like, they were struggling with that idea of vanity, that idea of racism, that idea Mm -hmm. of being a good Samaritan, all of that. Danny was much clearer about the fact that there's danger out there, and I don't know why the hell you're out of your house, and things are going to get worse, and I hope... I don't have to see you again, basically. Yeah. I mean, it was harsh, it right? It was so harsh. It was harsh. <laughs> and and Rose is is the opposite. She's just she's just doing her own thing and she turns out to be the opposite of useless. And she turns out to be so intuitive and so brave and so like I had so much respect for her as a mm-hmm. character. You know, they call her Rosie because they infantilize her, but she's you know, she's Rose. Yeah. She's she's doing her thing. She's blooming into a rose. She is. Precisely. <laughs> and that's why she makes it through. That's I'm convinced that she's the she one who makes to. it through. Because she wasn't she wasn't like the rest of them. No, she was very different from, from all of them. Even the brother was kind of they were kind of babying him even though he was a teenager at this point and she was the only one who really had it together and, and just 
wanted to genuinely help the situation. And, and Archie had a shit attitude. He did. And Rose like was, was never, uh, she was never affected by that. Mm-hmm. There was a power in that because he was kind of rude to her at times, treating her like a child. And, and she never allowed for any of that to, to bother her, to get in her way, to nothing. I mean, she was sort of just one in one ear, out the other. And I really respected her for that. But, you know, as we mentioned, she doesn't she doesn't really come back. Right. We don't, we don't have a moment where they find her. But let's talk about the ending non-ending. I don't. So I have a very strong opinion about. Let's hear ending, it. Not ending. Let's hear it. So I'm reading. I'm so excited. I'm like, oh, my God, she went to the house. Finally, someone went out and ventured off. And, you know, she's walking back and she's so proud of herself because she brought back, you know, useful supplies and can't wait to meet up with everyone and show that she's not a baby and she's not a little kid and she could be of use. And then it stops. There's like more words and then it ends. And that is, that just gets me because I need to know. (laughs) I need to know what happens with Archie, with GH, with Ruth, with Amanda screaming for Rose. I, I want a, you know, wrapped up ending and that is not what this is. Right. And what we were discussing earlier is how the author is trying to convince you as a reader and as a person that you do not need, nor should, nor are you always worthy of all the answers. And this is very intentional. I know. I think. I know. But I it annoys like it. the shit out of you. <laughs> and I think naturally it's supposed to, because we're not supposed to be wise enough to understand that, you know, like we want to know because we get attached, we get emotionally attached to these characters. I had sort of convinced myself already that they were all going to die with the exception of Rose. So on the last page, I was like, okay, well, this doesn't change the fact that I still think that only Rose survives. But I think that just goes to show how everyone's going to interpret this book very differently. Yeah. Even though we, we've talked a lot about the book and given you, you know, clues here and there, like, look, just us two reading the book <laughs> took it very differently. And I'm sure there's other interpretations that we're not even thinking of. Exactly. Everyone's going to have a different opinion. So be be sure to share yours with us uh, if you have read this book or if you're going to read this book, because that's, w- that's what makes these books, I think, so interesting mm-hmm. is just the fact that there are going to be so many different interpretations floating around, different characters that you respect, that you don't respect, that you like, that you feel make it, that you feel might, you know, might not. There's so much mystery and so many secondary characters that are mentioned. Yeah. Um, well, they're not even really characters at all. They're they're more anecdotes. But you know, the author mentions, oh, and and the man who worked in the dry cleaning shop actually just <laughs> died in the elevator after yeah. being there for sixteen hours or something like that. Like you know that there's some horrible stuff that's happening, and we know as readers more than the characters do. Yeah. That's where a lot of the anxiety comes from is the fact that we know more than they do and we expect something bad to happen to them even though when you then put yourself in their shoes you can't imagine not having enough information right like it's just this very cool place to be as a reader i think and the book ends yes in a controversial and difficult way but i do want to read the very very last line in the book because i think i think it's inherently hopeful (laughs) you laugh because it's it's so weird for me to say that. But this line, I think, is so brilliant. It says, if they didn't know how it would end with night, with more terrible noise from the top of Olympus, with bombs, with disease, with blood, with happiness, with deer, or something else, watching them from the darkened woods. Well, wasn't that true of every day? I guess this is This is supposed to mean... That like we really don't know. We don't know anything. What the hell is happening. going on? We don't know what's gonna happen, and and that's really, I think, inherently hopeful, because he does mention right. The author mentions that we never know when the last time we're gonna do something is, because if we did know that, we wouldn't be able to get through life. We don't know when the last time we're gonna do this is or that is. And so I think that there is something inherently hopeful in the last line and in the book itself, just about how we need to be okay with not having all the answers. Because sometimes, as opposed to Clay and Amanda and GH and Ruth, sometimes what we're envisioning is terrible. Mm-hmm. And it's 
not actually going to be terrible. Yeah. I know, I know that this book is, we know that terrible things happen. Now we know that there's like death and destruction and all of these sorts of things, but there is an inherent hopefulness in the fact that you control what you're, you know, what, what you're envisioning, right? Yeah. For the future or for yourself, it's full et possibilities and opportunities because you don't know what's, you know, going to happen or may have happened. So. Right. And that envisioning the worst is really not the most productive thing no. because as we saw, <laughs> not a single person in this book who envisioned the worst did anything helpful, did anything no. at all, right? If anything, they just set the group on a downward spiral. Yeah, they made things significantly <laughs> more uncomfortable for, Difficult. for themselves. Um, so we highly encourage you to pick up this book to read it and to tell us your interpretations. The last thing I'll say is this book is peppered with really, really cool historical references with gems of quotes and really fantastic inner dialogue. It's really brilliantly written. It's succinct. It's short, but it packs a punch. I mean, I can't, I can't emphasize enough just how interesting and how unique of a thriller this really is. There are moments, I think, for everybody. You know, if you, if you like thrillers, if you like just really good, succinct writing, if you're interested in, as I mentioned, historical references, there's a moment when, when they talk about how you don't need to shoot an archduke anymore for there to be some sort of world war. <laughs> That's a very cool World War One reference that not everyone is going to get, but it's fun and it's exciting and it's interesting. So I highly recommend that you pick up this book, and most importantly, that you tell us your interpretation of the ending. This is what I really want to hear from people because I'm dying to know what other people think. And now let's do what I think we do best, yeah. which is drink our wine. And Alexa, take us through these awesome, delicious bottles that we've been sipping on. Great. So I'm really excited about this wine because I feel... So it's it's a wine that's very accessible. You can pick it up at the grocery store, um, and I picked it up many times but i also feel like it's the kind of wine that amanda and clay would buy because they'd go to the small town grocery store she talked heavily about her shopping list how she wrote it down and and went through everything she definitely put wine on the list and i know she was drinking a lot of red wine <laughs> a lot of red wine <laughs> and i know that uh louisa doe would definitely be um accessible to them in, in long island so um they were in a vacation house i thought that you know she was drinking a lot of red wine, so instead of going with a heavy cab or a Merlot, I would pick a Beaujolais Village um, because it is light and juicy and bright, and I'll go more into the details on that one right after. And, of course, I love Chablis, so um, perfect, crisp. They're in the pool a lot before, you know, everything goes down, so I figured what what better wine than that to, to have with, um, with the side of you know, summer break as they were envisioning. And it speaks to the two sides of the book, I think, those moments of like, you know, them being at home inside, drinking the red wine, and those moments of clarity and happiness and vision, drinking maybe the Chablis outside. Yeah, that's exactly it. And so, um, and I also think it's important to touch upon, um, so this wine region, Burgundy. I feel like a lot of people that are non-wine people, when they hear, oh, Burgundy, they, they get this, this idea in their head that it's not accessible for them or to mm -hmm. them, that it's just kind of some French region that they have no clue what to make of Far the away labels. over there. Far away. It's like, it's not for me, but I think Louise Jadot does a great job of making it accessible and understandable. Um, because like we said in earlier episodes in the old world where, you know, France, Italy, Spain, a lot of regions are marked on the label as opposed to the grape. So you may pick up, a bottle and be like what is burgundy what does that consist of what would that taste like and i think louis Jadot does a really good job of uh, making it accessible for people so um, burgundy is located in a region in east central france so there's a lot of chardonnay and pinot noir that's made but the first wine that i'm going to highlight is the beaujolais um, village which i think it's very interesting it has a special place in my heart it is a red wine and when people think of Burgundy, they usually think about Pinot Noir, but there is this 
fun, delicious grape called Gamay that definitely sparkles and shines through through Beaujolais. And it's a really easy drinking wine. Um, it's made with um, this one in particular because it's a village. So in Burgundy, there's a classification system where it's just if a wine is labeled Burgundy, it comes from the grapes could be from anywhere within Burgundy. If they have village, it's a more specific area. So it's like a little little tear up. Um, Premier Cru and Grand Cru are the top of the top and they pretty much come from specific vineyards and sites within Appalachian. So Interesting. it's like a ladder, a ladder of delicious right. fun. Um, so this is a village, so it's a bit more um, prestigious uh, for a Beaujolais and, but it's not yet a Cru. Um, and it's easy drinking. It's the soils are light and it really makes um, the wine be fresh. Um, it's very fruit forward and juicy. Lots of strawberries, black cherries, like candied notes almost and spice notes. So we're going to drink that. Let's take a sip. Let's take a sip. I just love how it smells. It's so good. It smells so fruity, so fresh, so deep. I really like it. You know, I'm a big fan of Beaujolais. You introduced me to it. Um, and it's it's just it's just the kind of perfect, fruity, yet warm. You know, you can pair it with so many different things. We're in Miami and, you know, drinking a red wine sometimes I think might sound foreign to people if we're sitting outside because it's so hot. But it is, it's refreshing. It's fruity. It's delicious. It's like so There's good. no occasion that I wouldn't want to drink this. No, definitely. And and like you said, in Miami, we don't really drink red wine like this. So it's a good transitional wine for, for fall vibes. Yes. <laughs> um, because it is still light and you can drink it slightly chilled. And it does still have that freshness that, you know, Amanda could be sipping on this while they're baking a cake as it rains outside and, and not have to, you know, she could walk outside to the deck and still be drinking it. So... I like that one a lot. Yeah, I'm, I'm a very, very big fan. This is the type of wine that I would want to take to a dinner party mm -hmm. to impress my friends. Yes, it's a good one. And fun fact, um, they do make white Beaujolais, Beaujolais Blanc, um, and it's made with Chardonnay. Um, and it's something that you never really find. So whenever I find it, I grab it because it's just one of those fun fun wines that you know you'll probably only have a couple times in your life right and then we have the chablis which is my favorite cheers um chablis is chardonnay for non-chardonnay drinkers so i mean i used to to be those people that are like i hate chardonnay because you think of california like the old school buttery you think buttery bulky mm -hmm. popcorn bomb of a oak barrel chardonnay mm -hmm. and it's disgusting to me at least to me um but chablis um is in burgundy it's a region there and they do make their wine with um 100 chardonnay but it's like it she she's queen it's the purest expression of chardonnay it's um delicious minerally um fresh it's just i love it the, it's so crisp it is crisp <laughs> love it and um you know and it and it gets that way too because of the the climate they have cold temperatures in the winter and then followed by spring frost and hot summers um they have limestone soils and it really brings in a unique um terroir to chablis to make wines this way so um and instead of so in california they use a lot of oak during fermentation here it's stainless steel. So you really do just get the expression of the mm. grape and not any, you know, added winemaking techniques to it. Right. This is this is the type of wine that I would want to give to somebody who has said like, oh, I don't really like to drink white wine because I think it's sweet. Yes. Like you hear that all the time. Like For people sure. who have just like, I don't know, had really bad or cheap or whatever white wine. This is the type of wine that I would give to somebody like that because it is so refreshing, so crisp. And it doesn't have, you know, that it doesn't have anything so powerful or offensive about it no. that makes you want to not drink white wine again. It's actually so, so delicious and light. And I love minerally wine. And this is just like the sort of perfect combination of that. It is. It's so bright and fresh and it's just perfect for, for sipping, sipping on that pool when they first got on vacation and they were all happy-go-lucky. Before the noise. Before the noise. <laughs> Before the knock on the door. 
<laughs> and uh, Louis Jadot has wines all throughout um, the Burgundy region. So they even have rosés, different type of Chardonnays and Pinot Noirs. This is just a couple of the variety that they have. So um, I, I think there's a Louis Jadot wine for everyone. Yeah, and, and, and I'm just really excited that you chose this because... You know, it's fun, obviously, to include, you know, exclusive wines that you might have to go to a specialty shop for. But when we say we want you guys to drink with us, we mean it. And this is something that is so accessible. I mean, we went to Publix and bought it. and, And we didn't even have to, like, go to a second Publix to find it. Like, it's very, very accessible. It is available. And so, you know, this is the type of wine that you can definitely find very easily, very quickly. And, and then message us and tell us, you know, all about it. If you yeah. loved it. Um, it's a great um, price point, too. Yes. How, so, much, how much were these? Um, I think the Chablis was $25 at Publix. And the Beaujolais Village, I think it was on sale for under 15 Okay, so, so it's steals. we made excellent choices steals. is what we did. We did. And we're bringing the choices and savings to you. <laughs> yep, exactly. Well, this was absolutely delicious. I have two full glasses of wine that I need to finish. And I actually spy the bottles over there. So we want to thank you all so very much. And Alexa, as always, cheers. Cheers.